Welcome to Wonk, a podcast sounding out smart policy and the people behind it. I'm Edward Greenspawn. Sometimes we Albertans make it too easy to be misunderstood. I would say that as a cabinet minister sitting around the table for 12 years in Ottawa, you constantly had to keep reminding your colleagues, no, you know what, that's not what's happening in Alberta. Let me tell you what's really going on. Anne McClellan started her time as a member of parliament with an instant entry into cabinet in 1993. She remained around that big table through her four terms as Liberal MP for Edmonton Centre. She was known as Landslide Annie, a tongue-in-cheek name bestowed on her for her hard-fought, nail-biting wins as a Liberal in Canada's Conservative heartland. She served as Minister of Natural Resources, Minister of Justice and Attorney General, Minister of Public Safety, Solicitor General, Minister of Health, and Deputy Prime Minister of Canada. Her post-political life has been no quieter. She has chaired boards, led panels, and acted as special counsel to the Bennett Jones Law Firm. She headed the task force on implementing marijuana legalization. She was called on to examine the dual role of Attorney General and Minister of Justice in the wake of the SNC-Lavalin affair. Today, she is co-chair, along with former Conservative Cabinet Minister Lisa Raitt, of the Coalition for Better Future, a group organized to promote long-term economic growth. And McClellan is a proud Nova Scotian and Albertan, a favorite daughter of both provinces. She has a capacity to fly above the noise of the moment and keep her eye firmly fixed on the horizon. She is, I dare say, a wonk's wonk. So we are naturally pleased to have her with us today on Wonk. Welcome, Anne. It's wonderful to be here, and what an introduction. That was over the top. But let me say, it's always a pleasure to be talking with you and PPF. I kind of want to start with some history. We don't talk about enough history in this country. So let's start with Landslide Annie. You had a great political career that almost wasn't. Tell us about how and why you got into politics. Well, I was born and brought up in Nova Scotia. That's where politics is bred in the bone. That's what we say, right? And so I was brought up in a political family. My mother was an elected county official. My father involved in provincial and federal liberal politics, helping the party in the back rooms. So that was the culture in which I was brought up in Nova Scotia. And then I moved to Alberta. When people say why, I say Peter Lougheed, because I was teaching law at the time at the University of New Brunswick. My career before public politics was as a legal academic. And I had been teaching at the University of New Brunswick, my main area of expertise, constitutional law, human rights, and governance. Well, the dean from U of A Law School called and said, we're looking for someone to teach constitutional law. Would you be interested in being interviewed? I thought, why not move to Alberta in July of 1980 when the contretemps, if you like, between Mr. Trudeau, Prime Minister, and Mr. Lougheed was heating up? Why not come out here and figure out what's animating Mr. Lougheed, his government, and Albertans? Then you run for office. 
Yes, and actually, I had been, as I say, involved even here in Alberta in Liberal Party politics, you know, going to the annual conventions. Although you can imagine in the early 80s, talking too much about the federal liberal government was not really a thing you did at many cocktail parties. But hadn't really thought a lot about running myself until one day a woman showed up at my office, someone I knew not really well, but someone I met on a number of occasions at various liberal functions. Her name was Claire. She became my campaign manager in that first campaign. She said, a number of us have been talking. We think you should run for the liberal nomination in Edmonton Northwest, as it then was. I came back after talking to my family that summer and said, okay, let's try and get the nomination. And we put a team together. It was contested. We got the nomination on December 7th, 1992. I will always remember that day because, of course, December 7th is Pearl Harbor Day. But this was not Pearl Harbor. No, I won. I won, actually. We started door knocking and never stopped until Election Day. And on that day, I won by one vote. And then after the judicial recount, I'd won by 11, I believe. Right. And did you think that you were going to win? Because... Liberals don't win in Alberta very often. We knew we had a shot based on what we were hearing at the doors. When you talk about political history, keep in mind that 93 election was still a lot of anger directed at the Conservatives around GST. And the man I was running against, the incumbent, the late Murray Doran, had chaired the Finance Committee. He had, I think, fairly skillfully gotten that legislation through the House of Commons Committee dealing with GST. He certainly bore a certain amount of the brunt of people's anger, especially here in Alberta. I'm interested that you won partly on GST and then went on to support it in government. Yes. Well, if you go back to the Red Book, the famous Red Book, to eliminate the GST, it was about doing something that would deliver identical revenues, right? And Mr. Martin stood up in the House one day, a couple of years in, and said, unfortunately, we have looked at every option. There's nothing out there that would do that. So we're keeping the GST. And there were consequences for that. So you're elected. And you go to cabinet right away, and you spend your entire elected career in cabinet. So what is it about Anne that gets you in cabinet right away and and gets you to all these portfolios? Well, keep in mind, as you've already referenced, federal liberals do not usually elect a lot of liberal members of parliament. Although, interestingly, in 93, we elected four liberal members of parliament from the city of Edmonton. So I think Mr. Kretchen, when he won the election, had to find a cabinet member from the province of Alberta. All I know is that I got a call from the soon-to-be PMO asking me to come to Ottawa for an interview. That was a Sunday, and I had my feet up sitting on the plane thinking about what does this mean? Because the judicial recount started on Monday. The day I was being interviewed by Mr. Kretchen, I didn't know 
whether I was going to win the judicial recount. And that recount took three days. They brought the Chief Justice of Alberta, who was sitting here in Edmonton, brought a judge in from Calgary because of my involvement with the law school for 13 years, teaching so many people, knowing the legal community here in Edmonton. He didn't want any allegations of bias or friendliness or anything like that. So he brought in a judge from Calgary. And I ended up winning by 11. So then you win in this landslide, quotation marks, and then you get these 12 and a half, 13 years in cabinet. So what's your proudest achievement as you reflect on that? And I'm going to ask you your greatest regret also. You know what? I really don't like questions like this, but let me say, I suppose the greatest achievement was actually at the end of 12 years, a lot of people in this province saying that I had represented their interests well right? That I had stood up for Albertans. That was important. That I seized the opportunities that I saw for Alberta in some ways to grow and prosper. I suppose one of the things I'm vilified for, even at the time to a certain extent, was my strong support of the development of the oil sands, right? But when you think about what the oil sands have delivered, in terms of economic growth, economic opportunities, not only for Albertans, but nationally, especially in terms of work and high paid work for people from all over this country. But, you know, Atlantic Canada, Quebec, Northern Ontario, British Columbia, you saw all those thousands of people on the planes coming to Fort McMurray after we decided, and Mr. Martin and Mr. Kretchen and myself, along with Premier Klein, Jim Dinning, then provincial treasurer, and Pat Black, as she then was, now Pat Nelson, my counterpart in Ministry of Energy here in Alberta. The six of us together, working together, even though tough, tough fiscal times, working together, Mr. Martin and Mr. Kretchen agreed that they would do an accelerated capital cost allowance. The province agreed that they would reduce their royalty rates and hold them in abeyance for some period of time. All of that led to the Declaration of Opportunity signed by everyone, including First Nations, Building Trades, Municipality of Wood Buffalo, companies in the energy sector, the amount of wealth that that decision made by federal and provincial governments at the time and the private sector actually has created an enormous amount of wealth in this country that has been distributed across. So we're going to put your support, your promotion of the oil sands into the proud achievements category, not the great regrets category, right? Yes, it's a proud achievement. And today you see with Pathways, those companies representing 97% of the oil sands production, making a commitment to net zero 2050 and working hard to do better, working hard to figure out how technology and human ingenuity will do what they did in the late 80s and early 90s, taking the oil out of the sands. Now what they're going to do is figure out how to take the carbon out of the extraction and refining of that oil. So in the regrets column, what would you put there? And I'm thinking in some ways of same-sex marriage where your government did move the yardsticks forward, but I don't think as far as a lot of people would have liked. Do you think you didn't go far enough at that time? 
no, I disagree with that because in fact, sometimes governments can lead public opinion, but you have to be very judicious, careful when you do that. And even within our own caucus, Ed, and too many people forget this, that there was opposition, even to my legislation, of which I am very proud, but it was one step on a journey, the modernization of benefits legislation, right? In terms of ensuring that same-sex couples were accorded the same benefits as opposite-sex couples, right? But in that legislation, because of that caucus, I guess, you did have to define marriage as a union between a man and a woman. We would not have gotten that legislation through our own caucus had we not said something like that. I mean, we had meetings of caucus in the evening, special meetings, talking to caucus members about modernization of benefits and what it meant and what it didn't mean. Now, would it have been nice to have put the whole package together at one time? Yes. But sometimes you take what you can get and you know that over time, society evolves and you get to a place where hopefully you have the support of the vast majority of society, right? Which is what we have today. So at that time, your prime minister was Jean Chrétien, and this sounds like a kind of Chrétien pragmatism and not everything gets done in a single day. Yeah, exactly. Pragmatic man, move the file forward, but sometimes it's not the whole step. And Mr. Chrétien was brilliant at understanding or sensing the public mood, but even more importantly, the mood of his caucus, how far you could take them on a given issue before you were going to run into a wall. You were just recently at his 90th birthday party. What was that like for you? It was wonderful, first of all, to see the boss, as we all called him affectionately in government, the boss at 90, as sharp as ever, all sorts of people, including Joe Clark, and Stephen Harper sang en français, happy birthday to Mr. Chrétien on the video. And it just broke the place up. You know, you kind of saw a kinder, maybe more gentle, open side of Mr. Harper that we didn't always see, in my opinion, when he was in public life. But he had some fun on the video, congratulating Mr. Chrétien on his birthday, reminiscing a little bit. That's great. Um, and you told us a little bit about Jean Chrétien's political style. You were also, of course, Paul Martin's deputy prime minister, and you once described him as interesting but high maintenance. How would you compare the management styles of these two prime ministers you served? Well, Mr. Chrétien's style was with his ministers. I gave you the job because I had confidence in your ability to do it. And I remember him saying, Minister, you will be the first to know when I don't have confidence in you anymore. Right? And that was his style. Go away. Do your job. You've got your mandate letter. You know what your job is. Go away and do your job. Okay. And Mr. Martin? Paul was much more hands-on in the sense of wanting to know what was going on, right? I would not describe him as a micromanager in each minister's department, but I think he and his staff 
were much more involved in what was going on in the departments and how things were being done. And even, I would say, in terms of trying to place people in ministers' staffs to help understand, you know, how things were going and what was going on. That would not have been Mr. Kretchen's style. But Mr. Martin and his people were dealing with a minority government, right? So you, I think you can understand that there needs to be, coming out of PMO, a closer understanding of what is going on in departments, where the political problems might be arising, and whether departments and ministers are delivering on those mandates. Because in a minority government, as we discovered, you don't know when it's going to end. Okay, so this flashback part of the film has been really fabulous. Let's return to the present for a moment, okay? You mentioned earlier that you're in Edmonton, and as we're recording this episode, an epic cold spell has been over Alberta for days. Power usage has been cut. People have been asked to cut back on their own power. How do you think this will play out in the larger energy debate going on in this country, and you know, most especially between Alberta and Ottawa? Putting to one side for this moment, the Ottawa-Alberta dynamic, I think it tells you a lot about the state of Alberta's and dare I say other provinces' energy grids, right? Electricity grids. There hasn't been enough investment. There hasn't probably been enough thought around what a clean grid looks like. We have talked about it for years. The United States has talked about building out a clean grid across the nation. They, in fact, are in investing a lot more than we are as a nation and as provinces in that initiative, but they keep running into some of the problems we do, which is states' rights and the views of different states, and the same thing plays out here. What you saw over these past few days was, in fact, our two sister provinces, British Columbia and Saskatchewan, having their own extreme electricity needs, power grid issues. So there wasn't any sharing. There was no power to share into Alberta. I understand that even Idaho, where we have some interconnect, in fact, dealing with the same situation. So as the minister here said, that it was really a perfect storm. We have not seen temperatures this low for a sustained period for a very long time. I don't want to sort of say anything but exceptional anymore because extreme weather seems to be so much more common. And that's one of the things we all have to take on board, that exceptional weather is all around us. And whether it's exceptionally cold, exceptionally hot, leading to wildfires earlier and more extreme, whether it's drought, and all these things are going to put pressure in one way or another on people's lives, not only in Alberta, but across the country and around the world, as we've seen. Well, totally. But does it make you more or less confident? Because, you know, you say there hasn't been enough investment in the system. We're talking about a system that needs to double or triple in its capacity and needs to get clean, which it is in some provinces, but not others in the process. So is that something you feel confident will happen by 2035? I am not confident that it will happen by 2035. However, I do think that events like this focus, in this case, Albertans, but Canadians in whatever ways, on the importance of getting the heavy lifting done. 
right, which is rebuilding the grid in this country, figuring out where our power comes from, much better sharing of power. These issues are all interrelated in terms of getting the electricity grid every Canadian needs for the future. We also know that to attract investment, I sit on the board of Invest Alberta. I'm also co-chair of the Coalition for a Better Future, which you referenced at the beginning with Lisa Raitt. What we know is that investment is attracted by clean electricity. That's what companies investing in Alberta and Canada want because that helps them in terms of their climate change and GHG goals. So this province, I think, understands that. We produce more renewables than I think any other part of the country. There is a review of that, but come end of February, early March, we're all hoping that we'll know what the landscape looks like for investment going forward in renewables so that we will continue to produce wind and solar. But that's not base power. So you're going to have a continued need for natural gas to provide base power. So I was heartened by the fact that I saw the province enter into an arrangement with OPG last week to look at small modular reactors. Ontario, where OPG is, has been a nuclear power for many, many years. For Alberta, it would be a first time. So that's a monumental potential shift. But it shows you that this province is not stuck in the past. I mean, when you think about the fact we have more solar and wind install capacity than any other part of the country, we're taking advantage of our natural advantages in that regard. And hopefully that will continue after this review. We're looking at nuclear. We're looking at how you green fossil fuels. So this raises an important question. Is Alberta misunderstood? There was a point at which you were asked by the current prime minister to help be a bridge or to help be a translator of Alberta and Ottawa. Is Alberta misunderstood? Sometimes we Albertans make it too easy to be misunderstood. Let me put it that way. I would say that as a cabinet minister, sitting around the table for 12 years in Ottawa, you constantly had to keep reminding your colleagues, no, you know what? exactly true. That's not what's happening in Alberta. Let me tell you what's really going on. And let me give you a very practical example, Ed. This was when my colleague Deanne Marlowe and then Alan Rock were ministers of health. And there were fights, big fights, remember, with the provinces, and this was with Premier Klein and so on. And people around the cabinet table in Ottawa, some, not all, obviously, some would say, Oh my gosh, Ann, it must be awful living in Alberta where all your health care is private delivery. And I said, hold it, hold it right there. You want to know the province that has the least private health delivery in this nation? It's the province of Alberta. And it probably still is, Ed. So you constantly are dealing with these things, but we do sometimes have a bit of a chip on our shoulders. And I do think that people sometimes here in Alberta, we feel we don't get credit for the things that we have done in terms of things like redistribution of wealth through the oil sands. And the tens of thousands of people from other parts of the country who've been employed go back home with big wage packets. They would never get back home and are able to send their kids to university and so on. Now, 
I'm not gilding the lily here, but yeah, sometimes I think we feel we don't get credit. I don't mean credit in terms of dollars and cents, although you do get into these unfortunate discussions. I think you mean credit in terms of respect. Yes, in terms of respect. Absolutely, Ed, that this province is a place it's growing. It is working hard, understanding that the basis of this province, well, it was agriculture for years, then oil and gas and forestry, mining, and all those things come with greenhouse gas emissions, some more than others, fossil fuels, obviously. And we're working hard to deal with that. And yeah, we probably could invest more and do more, but we're actually doing that, I think, in ways that a lot of people in the rest of the country don't know. And maybe we need to do a better job of telling our story in terms of what we are doing, because lots of very important concrete things are happening here. I hear you very clearly on the Alberta-Ottawa relationship. I want to just, before we wrap up, look at the nation and the economy, as you're the co-chair of the Coalition for Better Future, and it is dedicated to the proposition of long-term growth. Why the heck do we need a coalition to talk about long-term growth? Isn't everybody in favor of long-term growth? Actually, no, and you probably are aware of the movement, the global movement that is opposed to further growth. But uh, let's park that to one side. But governments, you're talking to governments. Aren't governments long-term growth advocates? They are, but they get distracted. And they don't focus on what is required to deliver the conditions for long-term growth. What would you want to see differently now? Because if everything was ticky-boo, we wouldn't have a coalition for better future concentrating on long-term growth. What is it, if you just said, here's one or two things we'd really like to see happening, what would those be? Well, it may mean different things for different industries in different geographic situations. But what it means is making sure that the regulatory regime, which an industry has to respond to, companies have to respond to, that it is as streamlined as possible for maximum efficiency and effectiveness. So regulatory regimes have to take on board where relevant, uh, the global warming threat and GHGs. They have to take on indigenous rights and how one engages and ensures partnerships with indigenous Canadians and so on. So the regulatory regime will be a product of that framework and the objectives embedded and the outcomes sought in that framework. That's such an important point. You know, at the Public Policy Forum, we've done a lot of work on the need to build a lot of supply. We've got to build supply of clean energy. We've got to build supplies of housing. We talk about the need to move into hurry-up offense. Are you seeing that happening? Not nearly fast enough. For example, something that your organization and your various gatherings across the country have talked about a lot, the importance of digitization. And one of our advisory board members at the coalition was talking about this, and he said, you know what? 
countries not nearly as developed in many respects as us are doing so much better in terms of digitizing their government, their services, digitizing their economy, providing the carrots and the regulatory regime and incentives required for the private sector, the nonprofit sector. So that's just one example. Digitalization. We used to be a leader. We've fallen behind many in the rest of the world. That will be key in terms of being efficient, effective, and more productive, and using the productive skills of our highly trained workforce. So digitization is key to productivity. Why aren't we focusing on it? Why hasn't the government of Canada and provincial and municipal governments as service providers, why haven't they digitized more quickly, providing an example to the private sector in this area? We have companies, we have industries like the banking industry that has moved forward with digitization, the oil and gas sector, digitization, right? I mean, we can find examples of good work being done, but actually we need to push it forward so that we're taking all the benefits, all the benefits from AI, while understanding it that there are also dangers. That is why the coalition exists, Ed. It was because people had this profound feeling that governments and the private sector and civil society were not focused in a coherent way around both the opportunities and the risks. You've had an amazing career and you keep advocating and keep talking about the good of your province, the good of the country, and I think we all appreciate that. If that 1993 election, if six people had gone the other way, that would have had a one-vote margin of loss, not victory. What trajectory would your life have taken? Would you have stayed a law professor? Would you be Supreme Court justice now? What do you think would have happened with Anne McClellan? You know what? I have no idea. I love law teaching. I love my students. I might have kept doing that. Maybe if you're legally trained, if you're a law professor, if you're viewed with, you know, a reasonable degree of competency, maybe you go to the bench. That was never a goal of mine because I wanted to keep talking <laughs> about the things that matter right, in public policy. And I am a partisan, obviously, there's no secret, I am a member of the Federal Liberal Party of Canada. So maybe I would have tried to run again at some point. You know what, I don't know. I just think, Ed, I've had a blessed life, a blessed career, 17 years as a law professor, 12 years as an elected official and minister in the government of Canada and some of the most exciting, interesting portfolios at some very interesting times in our history. And then I've been here at the law firm of Bennett Jones for almost 18 years as a senior advisor. So you know what? I think I've had a good run. It's not over. I'm going to continue doing the things I enjoy doing, including my vice chairmanship of the Coalition for a Better Future and other boards and opportunities. You know, you'll see me out there somewhere, Ed, talking about something. Okay, well, we're not going to make Anne McClellan disappear, nor do we want to. We're uh, happy to have you out there talking and advocating and educating and we're so happy to have had you on Wonk. Thank you so much for joining us today, Anne. It was my pleasure, Ed, as always. 
Well, those six voters who put Anne McClellan in office are certainly responsible for something. One could say they were without normal knowledge. Wonk. I hope you'll agree Wonk the podcast offers a lot more than normal knowledge. Subscribe now and use the word ed to get 50% more insight. I'm told that works. Stay tuned for new episodes every Thursday. I'm Edward Greenspawn. This is Wonk. Wonk.